It's Monday, October 11th, and you've got Oz in your ears. Yeah, ready to dance, ready to give you another Radio Free Oz show here. Hi, Dave. Dave Hi, Osmond. Pete. Hi, Pete. I'm Pete, Pete Bergman. In case you didn't know, and we're we're creeping close to putting our subscription site together. The Ozineers will live very soon. We're just doing the final tweaks, working the website. There's all sorts of things you have to do to create a really vibrant, you know, subscription only site inside another site. You know, mm-hmm. you got to give people, as, as Scott Wilde says, 15 times more than what they expected. Now, I don't know the level of your expectation, potential Ozineers, but if we can do it by 15x. We kick in. Wow, it. wow! I mean, it's got what is it? Is this the traditional bells and whistles application? Where I it think goes in there. And it's just... some sort of a bell curve. Certainly yeah. makes me whistle. All right. Yeah, well, we'll, well, just, we'll just we'll just try and keep it funny. Uh, anything on the comedy calendar? Oh, for funny. Today? Let's see. This is the uh, this is the eleventh. Eleventh. Well, the eleventh. I can only say this: that um, as long ago as nineteen seventy-five, yes, Saturday Night Live went on the air. So it's. 35 years now of Saturday Night Live. That's a really long-lasting television program. And, you know, it's always had this, like, minor rating, about like a point nine or something <laughs> like that, which turns out to be okay for late on Saturday night. They never thought it was going to last. Well, you know, Saturday night is, in broadcasting, is the worst night of the year. I mean, you can't do anything. They, they brought out uh, um, George Carlin, yeah, uh, our friend yeah. George Carlin, um, to... Be the host for that very first show, so you knew it had an edge. Nineteen seventy-five, mid seventies. Right. The thing wasn't quite over yet. He was, you know, he was still an edgy guy then. Yeah. Well, remember we'd gone through the whole hippie thing though, when there was the Firesign Theater already. You know, Firesign Theater was never welcome on on Saturday Night Live. People kept saying, "Why aren't you on SNL?" Well, it seems that Lauren Michaels, for some reason, didn't like the Firesign Theater. Somebody said he felt threatened by them. I have no reason to believe or disbelieve that. All I know is that we never got the call. Well, he never booked those two guys from Waiting for Godot either. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. Strictly off the huff. Corporate America finished the second quarter with near-historic profits, largely by cutting costs, laying off employees, and streamlining operations, so says the Wall Street Journal. Profits for companies in the S&P 500 soared 38% from the same period last year, hitting $189 billion, the WSJ says, the sixth highest quarterly total ever. S&P analysts expect the trend to continue on into the third quarter, which, by the way, is right now. So the S&P 500 and the rest of their brothers and sisters are making enormous profits. Since 2008, corporate profits increased 10%, but revenue was down 6%. To achieve the impressive quarterly results, companies have had, as the WSJ puts it, to streamline their operations. Uh Uh-oh, that's like, I think it's basically driving a streamlined train over most of their employees. This means firing workers, outsourcing labor, and shuttering unprofitable or less profitable divisions, and also less profitable stores as the malls go dark. The robust state of corporate profits presents a paradox. Uh Uh-huh. Companies won't spend their money until the economy improves, but the economy won't improve until they spend their money. An increase in hiring, for example, would help drive a recovery. The New York Times reports this chicken-and-egg phenomena, noting that near-zero interest rates have encouraged companies to borrow money and simply hoard it, because, as the New York Times puts it, they can. Combined, companies have $1.6 trillion in cash, the paper notes. In the first quarter of this year, their cash reserves represented the highest percentage of assets since 1964. Yes, we reported on this yesterday. They are still holding on to more cash in the same way that Noah built the ark, Gluskenchef chief economist David Rosenberg told the Times. In August, bank profits during the second quarter rose 21% to almost $22 billion, the highest level in three years. So the the corporations and the banks are making out like bandits. We can't borrow a penny. And the, the economy is, is suffering from sclerosis of, of, of funds. All these corporate profits came as the country as a whole got poorer. The net worth of households and nonprofits dropped to 2.8% during the second quarter to $53.5 trillion, erasing two quarters of gains. So much for the recovery. 
The figure hasn't been that low since the third quarter of 2009. So we're just slipping back and the corporations are borrowing and hoarding. The banks are making record profits. This is a recipe for disaster. This is a recipe for popular revolt. Something is going to happen. It's not going to happen because of the midterms. It's going to come out of misery and need. And it's going to be fierce. They used to tell me I was building a dream. And so I followed the mob. From Talking Point Memos. Democrats are crossing their fingers and hoping to narrow both the enthusiasm gap and the spread in the generic ballot in the week before the midterm elections. But they're about to contend once again with a sobering reality. On Friday, the Department of Labor will release its monthly unemployment statistics, and according to an independent analysis, the unemployment rate is likely to rise ever so slightly, like the temperature on a feverish patient. You know, they say that, you know, you can, you can scald a frog by putting it in water and slowly raising the temperature so it doesn't realize it until it's too late. Well, that's what's happening to our economy. A Bloomberg News survey of 62 economists found that unemployment climbed to 9.7% from 9.6% in August. The data may also show companies added 77,000 workers to payrolls and total hiring stagnated amid cuts in uh, government uh, staffing as the decennial census wound down, according to Bloomberg. In other words, job growth is too anemic to keep up with government job losses and the regular growth of the labor force, leaving a greater percentage of workers without jobs. Bloomberg also projects that U.S. economic growth is continuing to slow. Slow. While the news is horrendous for American workers, it's also tough politically for Democrats. As if somehow Democrats also aren't American workers? As the recovery has stalled, President Obama's approval rating has sunk, and the enthusiasm gap separating energized Republican voters and lethargic Democratic voters has opened up. This seems to be in turnaround now, but we have to wait and see. In recent weeks, it has showed definitely signs of narrowing as voters turn their attention to November. But the Friday report could blunt that progress. As long as Americans connect the unemployment rate with Barack Obama— instead of with the eight years of greed and sedition that preceded him, then they are going to remain ignorant and ineffective and are going to deserve exactly the Congress they get. Just a few odds and ends, Dave, from from the odds and ends section of the newspaper. Now, our politicians are just wussy compared to what's going down in South America. Bolivian President Evo Morales need an opposing player in the groin during a soccer match against a team of political rivals after an apparent hard foul by the opponent. Images of the altercation broadcast this week. Sunday's game was played against a team led by La Paz Mayor Luis Ravilla, a former Morales ally who turned against the president earlier in the year. Uh-huh. I mean, you know, even Schwarzenegger, you know, he's not kneeing people in the groin. No, so. no. Well, what about, uh, you know, it, it it could happen with Jerry Brown, you know. No, I mean, Jerry not, Brown. He's no. not going to knee anybody. No, and he's, he's not, not going to. Field no. of combat isn't his thing, is no, it? No, no, it isn't. Okay, no, okay. Here's, my, here's one of my favorite, though, because, you know, okay. Hotel Surprise. Hotel Surprise. A Los Angeles woman filed a suit against Hyatt Hotels this week alleging she found a strange man wearing one of her skirts and a pair of her high heel shoes along with a Hyatt shirt when she walked into her room at the Hyatt in Deerfield, Illinois. Whoa! Deerfield, Illinois. Whoa, man. You know, he's wearing a Hyatt uniform and her skirt and a pair of high heels. Is this a special way of saying hello? I guess it's the irresistible, you know, her skirt must have just... You know, somehow it was too much. sung up to this guy, and yeah. he put it on, and then her shoes were sitting And there. her shoes fit. Tucking the shoes, look at that. And he looks at himself. There's a full-length mirror in the room. He looks at himself in the full-length mirror. The door opens. And oh, there she is. It's one of those. The woman or man of his dreams. Yes. It's an oh-shit moment. Huh? Yeah, this is out of Politico, and it's by Senator Tom Harkin, a great senator from Iowa, a real progressive a true liberal and a man of great compassion, and he's got a pretty good brain, too. He's talking about the patient's bill of rights that, that um, you know, um, hooked in last week. 
And it is already being uh, discovered by people all over the country as to how positive this whole healthcare thing is. And it's beginning to turn the tide a bit, it appears, according to polls. Starting this month, says Tom, health insurance companies can no longer cancel your policy if you get cancer or refuse to cover your child because of a pre-existing condition. A key feature of the new health reform law signed by President Barack Obama six months ago is a patient's bill of rights. It cracks down on the worst abuses of health insurance companies and gives Americans important new protections. It was one of the best things they came up with was that sobriquet, Patients' Bill of Rights. Sounds good. It's better than contract with America and a lot more real and a lot more effective. On September 23rd, the law's six-month anniversary, six major reforms kicked in. Now the law bans insurance companies from dropping patients' coverage. Previously, insurers used technicalities, yeah, like typos, to cancel coverage retroactively for patients who contracted serious illnesses. Can you imagine One big insurer specifically targeted women diagnosed with breast cancer. Many insurers rewarded employees with bonuses based on the number of canceled policies and the money saved. Huh, really, they're doing this right now. Imagine rewarding employees for canceling policies of people sick, women sick with breast cancer. These insurance company executives should be placed in stocks in the public square and ridiculed day and night, if not being sent to jail. Okay, the Patients' Bill of Rights bans denial of coverage for children with pre-existing conditions. Job-based health plans and new individual plans are no longer allowed to deny or exclude coverage for children younger than 19 based on a pre-existing condition, including a disability. So in the past, if your child had a disability, if your child had a sports-related accident, they couldn't get coverage for it. You see, it was a health business, bottom lines, return on investment. We're talking about health, sucker. Okay, the new law cracks down on benefit payment limits. Insurance companies are prohibited from imposing lifetime dollar limits on essential benefits, such as hospital stays. Restrictions are now imposed on using annual limits. Yeah, sounds good to me. The law also provides for appeal of insurance company decisions. This is key. It was impossible to get those bastards on the phone. If you purchase a new policy, you can appeal insurance company decisions to an independent third party. It also guarantees free preventive care. All new plans must cover certain preventive services such as mammograms and colonoscopies without charging a deductible copay or coinsurance. I think that if you performed a few free colonoscopies, colonoscopies, however you pronounce it, you're going to stick it up the same place on those executives, you'd find their brains. Don't bother looking for a heart. It ain't there. It ain't anywhere. All right, the new law extends coverage for young adults. Young adults are now allowed to stay on their parents' plan until 26, which is when most kids get out of college. Makes sense to me. These new benefits and protections will have profound benefits for people across America. I recently learned about the case of a young Iowan. During her first year at college, she had to have multiple surgeries because of Crohn's disease and was forced to drop all her classes. In turn, her health insurer canceled her policy. Four years and seven surgeries later, she was $180,000 in debt and forced to file for bankruptcy. This is exactly the kind of heartbreaking, destructive predicament that the Affordable Care Act and the Patients' Bill of Rights are designed to prevent. The new law is ushering in landmark changes in America's health care system. As many predicted, the law is increasingly popular as Americans get better acquainted with its broad range of benefits and consumer protections. 49% of Americans now view the new law favorably, according to the Kaiser Family Foundation's September health tracking poll. That's versus 40% unfavorably. And those will change. This positive showing is all the more impressive considering that according to that same poll, gross misconceptions sown by the law's opponents still persist. Get this, three in 10 seniors still believe that the law creates government death panels to make decisions about end-of-life care for Medicare recipients. And who spread this calumny? Sarah Palin. Put her in the stocks. During the Senate debate last week, Republicans claimed that implementing the law will require more pages of regulations than were in the original bill. 
No sensible person judges a bill's merits by the pages of regulations needed to implement it. Since the Republicans can't identify a credible source for their claim, uh, it was probably the bartender at Boehmer's favorite watering hole, one can only assume it was made up by the health insurance industry. Mark my words, this is Harkin's words, Americans will not allow their hard-earned benefits and protections to be taken away. We will stay the course, defending the strong reforms in this new law and creating a reformed insurance and health care system that works not just for the healthy and the wealthy, but for all Americans. Tom Harkin, you rock! spoke of death on some coast I saw the crumbling debris It dealt me a blow But I'm thankful to know That it could never happen to me I am standing on motionless land A constant under my feet God for walls and a roof overhead It could never happen to me I feel for the poor folks who wander the streets In search of their daughters and sons It's sad there are people with nothing to eat But I'm thankful I'll never be without flaws and I've suffered through loss I've got problems away on my mind I've got bills to pay and a son on the way so I've gotta save every so far from my door as if tragedy lives overseas I wish I could help but I'm glad for myself that it could never happen to me it could never happen to me The Wall Street Journal says that corporate America finished the second quarter of 2010 with near-historic profits. Now there's a piece of economic leisure domain. How do you make Boku bucks in the midst of the Great Depression light? Profits from the S&P 500 are up 38% from last year, the sixth highest quarterly total ever. It would be a good thing if those behemoths had raked in all that scratch by selling a whole lot of widgets or servicing a ton of clients. No way. Since 2008, corporate revenues have shrunk 6% while all those profits were being generated. They did it by magic. Not black magic, but pink magic. 
corporate America is making out like the moral bandit it is by firing people right and left and outsourcing every job it can possibly deport. The nation is awash in pink. The 77,000 job hires in September couldn't compensate for the final exit of the census takers, another 10 years before that stimulus returns, and the regular growth of the labor force. So, the unemployment upticks to 9.7. Simultaneously, the Fed has hammered the prime rate down to 99-cent store proportions, so the same companies handing out the pinks are borrowing oodles of green for next to nothing. The country's mega-businesses are hoarding $1.6 trillion of cash, while small businesses and households can't borrow a dime. Not a recipe for prosperity in any economic cookbook I've read. It all comes down to the flow of capital, the lifeblood of our national economy. If corporate America continues to squat on its cash instead of investing it in we the people, and if the federal government continues to squander our treasure abroad instead of investing it in we the people, then that lifeblood will not flow and our economy will go into shock. We're all about turning the federal government upside down. Why not the corporations? They're only a legal fiction. The corporate veil can be pierced with the stroke of a pen. Make the board of directors and the major shareholders personally responsible for the careers they terminate and the jobs they smuggle abroad. That just might put us back in the pink. David, this is the article for which we earn our salary. Because, of course, salary comes from the word salt. You know, you're worth your salt. Oh, yes. Okay. Salt was a big deal. It's a big deal today. But the New York Times tells us that with salt under attack for its ill effects on the nation's health, the food giant Cargill kicked off a campaign last November to spread its own message. Quote, salt is a pretty amazing compound. Alton Brown, a Food Network star, gushes in a Cargill video called Salt 101. So make sure you have plenty of salt in your kitchen at all times. The campaign by Cargill, which both produces and uses... Keeps me from slipping on the floor. Yeah, right? it's also good for throwing my shoulder for good luck. That's and all, right. you know, all, all those that use, stuff, yeah. I, think, I don't know if it works Mice on vampires, but you never know. Mice don't like it, but go right ahead, yeah. Right. The campaign by Cargill, which both produces and uses salt, promotes salt as life-enhancing and suggests sprinkling it on foods as varied as chocolate cookies, fresh fruit, ice cream, and even coffee. Hmm. You might be surprised, Mr. Brown says, by what foods are enhanced by its briny kiss. Ho, 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 says Mr. Brown. It's briny kiss. It's briny kiss. Who writes his material? Probably himself. By all appearances, this is a moment of reckoning for salt because high blood pressure is rising among adults and children. Government health experts, they're estimating the deep cuts in salt consumption could save 150,000 lives a year. I'm sorry. The world's overcrowded anyway. Go go on. Go right on. Processed foods account for most of the salt in the American diet, according you to bet. national health health officials. In fact, Mayor Richard Bloomberg of New York and Michelle Obama are urging food companies to greatly reduce their use of salt. Last month, the Institute of Medicine went further, urging the government to force companies to do so. Oh, the teabaggers! Oh, oh government yeah, force! They're telling me I can't put salt on my pizza. Yeah, I put salt in my milk. Yeah. come on! I can't put more salt in my coffee. Well, that's a taste. I can't live with. Out. Out. But the industry is working overtly and behind the scenes to fend off these attacks using a shifting set of tactics that have defeated similar efforts for 30 years. I'm watching you, Cargill. Go ahead. Industry insiders call the strategy delay and divert. Uh-huh. Uh, are we using that somewhere else? Well, no, that's shock and awe. Oh, I remember, right, yeah. yeah. And they say companies have a powerful incentive to fight back. They crave salt as a low-cost way to create tastes and textures. Mm. I'm trying to do that with my voice right now. Right, tastes and textures. Doing without it risks losing customers, and replacing it with more expensive ingredients risks Losing profits. Uh-oh, uh-oh, uh-oh. When health advocates first petitioned the federal government to regulate salt in 1978, food companies sponsored research aimed at casting doubt on the link between salt and hypertension. Can't do that anymore. Two decades later, when federal officials tried to cut the salt in products labeled healthy, mm-hmm. companies argued that foods already low in sugar and fat would not sell with less salt. 
Uh-huh. Now the industry is blaming consumers for resisting efforts to, resu- to reduce the salt in all foods. Pointing to, as Kellogg put it in a letter to a federal nutrition advisory committee, the virtually intractable nature of the appetite for salt. So it's the salt addicts. It's the people with the salt jones out there that are keeping the fast food industry from taking the stuff out. This, this is good. Uh, well, yeah, because that's what the taste in all those foods is, after all. is It's all salt. I mean, look at the ingredients. Supplies 95% of the daily intake of salt. Yeah, well, okay. Okay. Even as it was moving from one line of defense to another, the processed food industry's own dependence on salt has deepened. Ooh. According to interview with company scientists. Oh, those are people I don't want to company go to dinner scientists, with. Uh-uh. Salt company scientists. Oh, no. Beyond its own taste, <laughs> salt also makes bitter flavors and counters a side effect of processed food production called warmed over flavor, which Ugh. the scientists said can make meat taste like cardboard or damp dog hair. Oh, well, I salt my damp dog hair before I consume it. So Absolutely. Everybody on it. Doesn't everybody do that with I their damp dog? I encrust my damp dog hair with salt. <laughs> That's the only thing to do. Salt also works yeah. in tandem with fat and sugar to achieve flavors that grip the consumer and do not let go. Oh, uh-huh. And this allure, is- they, what they do is they grip the sides of the arteries <laughs> yes. and never let go. This is an allure the industry has recognized for decades. Quote, once a, prefer- once a preference is acquired, a top scientist at Frito-Lay wrote in a mm. 1979 internal memorandum, uh-huh. most people do not change it, but simply obey it. They obey it. Obey oh. the Salt Jones. In, in recent months, food companies, including Kellogg, have said they were redoubling efforts to reduce salt, but they say they can go only so far, so fast, without compromising taste consumers have come to relish or salt's ability to preserve food. We have to earn the consumer's trust every day, said George Doughty, a senior vice president of Campbell Soup. And if you disappoint the consumer, there is no guarantee they will come back. Now, Campbell's makes so many different kinds of soup. Like yeah. it's 300 feet of soup in the store. It stretches on. White and red, red and white. It goes on and on and on. There's a salt. There's a salt-free everything, and along with a increased salt and, and manly and, salt and, and low salt <laughs> and wussy salt. <laughs> all those compromises. They've all already done that. I mean, do you know by the way that uh, Campbell Soup is the largest purchaser of wine? in the country, that there's wine in almost all their soups. Yeah, but you have to salt it. Yeah, right. Okay, here's case study. Okay. The Cheez-It. Ready? Okay, the Cheez-It. The power that salt holds over processed foods can be seen in an American snack icon, the Cheez-It. At the company's laboratories in Battle Creek, Michigan, a Kellogg vice president and food scientist, John Keplinger, ticked off the way salt makes its little square cracker work. I'd like to show you the way these little square crackers work here. <laughs> I think, I'm, I'm I sure think, you've all had a few of these before, but this is the way it works. Go right ahead. Oh, uh, heck, man. I think John Keplinger is probably a little square cracker. Wrong accent, but go ahead. Salt sprinkled on top gives the tongue a quick buzz. <laughs> More salt in the cheese adds crunch. Still more in the dough blocks the tang that develops during fermentation. In all, a generous cup of Cheez-Its delivers one-third of the daily amount of sodium recommended for most Americans. That's it. One-third of a cup? No, it, a cup. Just a little cup of cheeses. A like cup gra- of cheeses. You grab your hand like while you're watching, you know, uh, World Wrestling. I would never do that, but well, go ahead. As a demonstration, Kellogg prepared some of its biggest sellers with most of the salt removed. Uh-oh. The cheese fell apart in surprising <laughs> ways. The golden yellow hue faded. I like this cheese, but it looks a little bit faded. Now, I want to show you that's without the salt. It's the faded one you see the here. The crackers became sticky when chewed, and the mash packed onto the teeth. The taste was not merely bland, but medicinal. I got to say, if you can't spit it out and taste like medicine is a piece, excuse me, I got to leave. Quote, I really got the bitter on that, the company spokeswoman Jay Andere Putman said, with a wince as she, as she watched Mr. Keplinger struggle to swallow. They moved on to cornflakes. Without salt, the cereal tasted metallic. The Eggo waffles evoked stale straw. The butter flavor in the Keebler light buttery crackers, which have no actual butter, simply disappeared. You mean the butter was all salt? Ain't that something? My gosh. 
Well, you know, it's, it's not anything like this in the pot business. From AOL's Daily Finance, one day after the demise in Congress of legislation that would have protected net neutrality, an issue that's important to all of us, the principle that broadband providers shouldn't play favorites with web content, all eyes have turned back to the Federal Communications Commission, which is under mounting pressure to act on the issue. Supporters of net neutrality have urged FCC Chairman Julius Janachowski to reclassify broadband from a Title I information service to a Title II communication service which would give the commission the authority it needs to enforce net neutrality. The broadband companies have vigorously opposed such a move, saying it could lead to price controls and runaway litigation, while supporters argue that net neutrality is necessary to ensure innovation uh, on the Internet. Of course, the companies don't want net neutrality. They want to be able to charge. They want to be able to squeeze this wheeze. Last Thursday, Senator Byron Dorgan urged the FCC, which has been caught in jurisdictional limbo ever since a federal judge ruled in April that the agency lacked the authority to enforce net neutrality, to reclassify broadband. While I appreciate all the work that has been done in the House on net neutrality, I continue to believe that the best way to preserve the free and open Internet is for the FCC to act now to reclassify broadband under Title II, Dorgan said. And on Wednesday, Henry Waxman, another of my men, Chairman of the House Energy and Commerce Committee announced that Republicans, led by Ranking Committee member Joe Barton, had refused to support a compromise bill that would have prevented phone and cable companies from discrimination against legal web content while also protecting them from the threat of reclassification for two years. A reasonable compromise. No, they said, because that's all they can do. They're these dolls. You pull a string on a Republican congressman and all you get is no. Pull it again. No. Are you the doll that can only say no? No. This development is a loss for consumers and a gain only for the extremes, Waxman said in a statement. We need to break the deadlock on net neutrality so that we can focus on building the most open and robust internet possible. It has a lot to do with our economic future. We all know that. So much business, so much communication is turning to the net. It has to be free. It has to be open. If our efforts to find bipartisan consensus fail, the FCC should move forward under Title II, Waxman added. This is not a solution for the future of the Internet, Barton added. America should be about preserving the vibrant and competitive free market. This lies about the free market. It's not free. He wants monopolies. He, he, the competitive free market that exists for the Internet and other interactive computer services unfettered by federal or state regulation. My, my, I'm so tired of all this posturing and lying. Here comes the old free market again, right? Nothing free about it, of course, just an opportunity, you know, to push their propaganda and make unnecessary profits. Barry Diller, chairman of the web conglomerate IAC, strongly urged companies that operate on the internet to back net neutrality. Quote, all of you have to get out there and start arguing for this strongly, Diller said during remarks at the TechCrunch Disrupt Conference. It is the lives of you all and the people coming after you. We have to protect them. Thank you, Barry. Hello. Hello. We're, We're glad, glad you, you made it. it. Welcome, Welcome to, to the future. USA Today says they're really lighting it up in Pakistan. The Pakistani Taliban has claimed responsibility for this week's attack on about 20 tankers carrying fuel for NATO troops in neighboring Afghanistan. Police say at least three people were killed when gunmen opened fire on the tankers and then set the trucks ablaze at a depot in Islamabad before dawn. Islamabad, this is, this is in like, you know, the capital city. This isn't in the boonies. A Pakistan Taliban spokesman told reporters that the attacks would continue until the supply convoys are stopped. The militant group also said it was avenging drone strikes on Pakistani territory. Yep, a second attack took place in the southwestern province of Baluchistan. Pakistani officials say two gunmen on motorcycles torched two trucks carrying NATO supplies, killing one person. In the original attacks, which were last week, nobody was killed. They're upping the ante. Um... 
Militants have staged a total of four targeted assaults on NATO trucks since late last week. Meanwhile, NATO supply convoys remain lined up at the Torkum border crossing in northwestern Pakistan four days after it was shut down following a NATO cross-border raid that Pakistan says killed three of its soldiers in the Kuram region. So, we're closing the gates. Nobody can come in. The ones that do get in, get torched. Hmm. NATO Secretary General Anders Fogh Rasmussen expressed his regret for the soldiers' deaths during talks Monday with Pakistani Foreign Minister Shah Mahmood Qureshi in Brussels. Rasmussen also urged Pakistan to reopen the supply route as soon as possible. The border crossing along the Khyber Pass is one of the main NATO supply routes through Pakistan into Afghanistan, where more than 152,000 U.S. and NATO personnel are fighting a Taliban-led insurgency. Why? I don't know. NATO says its forces were pursuing militants out of self-defense when helicopters crossed the border into Pakistan on Thursday. Did they have the green light to do that? Had they checked ahead? Hmm? A joint investigation is underway. A sharp increase in attacks by unmanned planes flying over Pakistan and recent NATO border incursions have raised tensions between the international forces and Islamabad. You think that's Islamabad? It's only going to get worse. Hey, all of you Ozaneers on Twitter, uh, retweeting has its rewards, and we are going to give you an opportunity to win some cool stuff simply by helping us spread the word about Radio Free Oz on Twitter. If you aren't following us yet, go up to www.twitter.com slash Network and follow the show. See you on the inside. The New York Times tells us that happy hour beers were going for five bucks at Past Perfect, a cavernous bar just off this city's strip of honky-tonks and tourist shops, where Adam Ringenberg walked in with a loaded 9mm pistol in his front pocket of his gray slacks. This is in Nashville, I believe. Mr. Ringenberg, a technology consultant, is one of the state's nearly 300,000 handgun permit holders who have recently seen their rights greatly expanded by a new law, one of the nation's first, that allows them to carry loaded firearms into bars and restaurants that serve alcohol. If someone's sticking a gun in my face, I'm not relying on their charity to keep me alive, said Mr. Ringenberg, 30, who said he carries the gun for personal protection when he is not at work. Gun right advocates like Mr. Ringenberg may applaud the new law, but many customers, waiters, and restaurateurs here are dismayed by the decision. That's not cool in my book, Art Anderson, 44, said as he nursed a Coors Light at Sam's Sports Bar and Grill near Vanderbilt University. It opens the door to trouble. It's giving you the right to be Wyatt Earp. Tennessee is one of four states, along with Arizona, why am I not surprised, Arizona, Georgia, and Virginia, that recently enacted laws explicitly allowing loaded guns in bars. Eighteen other states allow weapons in restaurants that serve alcohol. The new measures in Tennessee and the three other states come after two landmark Supreme Court rulings that citizens have an individual right, not just in connection with a well-regulated militia, to keep a loaded handgun for home defense. Hey, but are you at home in a bar? Some people are. Experts say these laws represent the latest wave in the country's gun debate as the gun lobby seeks state by state to expand the realm of guns in everyday life. State Representative Curry Todd, a Republican who first introduced the guns in bars bill here, said that carrying a gun inside a tavern was never the law's primary intention. Rather, he said the law lets people defend themselves while walking to and from restaurants. But no, I'm walking and I'm carrying, I'm in the bar, I'm carrying, I'm leaving the bar, I'm carrying. You know what it comes down to, buddy? Hey, I'm carrying. Folks were being robbed, assaulted. It was becoming an issue of personal safety, said Mr. Todd, who added that the National Rifle Association had aided his legislative efforts. The police aren't going to be able to protect you. They're going to be checking out the crime scene after you and your family's been shot or injured or assaulted or raped or all at once. Under Tennessee's new law, gun permit holders are not supposed to drink alcohol while carrying their weapons. Yeah, uh-huh. Mr. Ringenberg washed down his steak sandwich with a Coke. But critics of the law say the provision is no guarantee of safety, pointing to a recent shooting in, a, in Virginia where a customer who had a permit to carry a concealed weapon shot himself in the leg while drinking beer at a restaurant. 
That'll take him out of the game for a while. Guns and alcohol don't mix. That's the bottom line, said Michael Drescher, a spokesman for Governor Paul Bredesen of Tennessee, a Democrat who vetoed the bill but was overridden by the legislature. They'll let anybody in the legislature. Down at Bobby's Idol Hour, I'll bet you there's more people hanging at Bobby's Idol Hour now, now that there's more idol and more hours in the day, however. Mike Gideon said he did not believe that guns and bars were unsafe. As he sipped a beer in the fading afternoon light, Mr. Gideon, who characterized his 19-gun collection as serious, probably the only serious thing in his life, said that having a few permit holders around made any public space safer and that he boycotts any business that does not allow him to carry a weapon. Wow, what a nice narrow life he leads. People who have gun permits have the cleanest records around, said Mr. Gideon, 54. The guy that's going to do the bad thing, he's not worried about the law at all. The no gun sign just says to him, hey, buddy, smooth sailing. To me, a no-gun sign says, hey, buddy, nobody's carrying, nobody's going to shoot themselves in the leg, and you along with it. I can certainly live with that. God, it's wonderful to be here in the wiggle room. Senator, it's always a pleasure. Well, I've learned something. Well, it's not always a pleasure. Sometimes it's an effort. Oh, yeah. Uh, what were you talking about? I don't know. You invited me here. It's on your taps. Oh, well. Oh, I wanted to tell you that when you get a little loaded, um, there are five states you don't want to get into. And the first one is getting a little loaded. <laughs> that's pretty That's pretty funny. I'm not going to say that on the floor, though. No, no, I'm not going to say that. The other, the other four states you want to stay out of are Tennessee, uh, Arizona, Georgia, Virginia. You know why? Yeah, because they all allow guns in the... They got guns in their belts when you walk in to get a drink. Don't you think that's scary? It's real scary. I mean, it's one thing if you're in Iraq where you're in the army and they don't let you drink and you can't drink anyway because it's the Middle East and they don't allow you to drink, which is one of the American privileges to drink. But with a gun... It, no, not even in the parking lot. I'm not going there. So I'm voting against this. I, can I vote against this? I don't know, Senator. You vote against everything else. You're a Republican. You haven't voted for anything since Obama was elected. Well, then it'll be easy. Yeah. All right, let's have another one, okay? Doubles over here. You want a Glock with your gimlet? Pretend that airplanes in the night sky like shooting stars I could really use a wish right now, wish right now, wish right now Could we pretend that airplanes in the night sky like shooting stars I could really use a wish right now, wish right now, wish right now It's 98, like I'm eating lunch off a styrofoam tray, yeah. trying to be the next rapper coming out the eight, eight hoping down. for a record deal to ignore my pain, yeah, now let's pretend like I'm on the stage, yeah. and when my beat drops, everybody goes insane, okay, and everybody know my name, uh-huh. and everywhere I go, people want to hear me sing, <laughs> oh yeah, and I just dropped my new album, on the first week I did 500,000, yes. gold in the spring, and diamond in the fall, okay. and then the world tour just to top it all off. Uh-huh. And let's pretend like they call me the greatest yeah. Selling out arenas with big ass stages ow, And everybody ow. loved me and no one ever hated <laughs> Just try to use imagination Can we pretend that airplanes in the night sky Like shooting stars I can really use a wish right now Wish right now, wish right now Can we pretend that airplanes in the night sky Like shooting stars I can really use a wish right now Wish right now, wish right now Okay, 
Let's pretend like this never happened. Like I never had dreams of being a rapper. Like I didn't write raps up in all of my classes. Like I never used to run away into the blackness now. Let's pretend like it was all good. Like I didn't live staring in the notebook. Like I did the things that I probably knew I should. But I ain't have neighbors. That's why they call it hood. Yeah. Now let's pretend like I ain't got a name. Before they ever call me B.O.B. or A.K.A. Bobby Ray. I'm talking back before the mixtapes. Before the videos and the deals and the fame. Before they ever once compared me to Andre. Before I ever got on my space. Before they ever noticed my face. So let's just pretend and make wishes out of airplanes. Can we pretend that airplanes in the night sky like shooting stars? I can really use a wish right now. Wish right now. Wish right now. And it seems like yesterday, it was just a dream. But those days are gone, gone. They're just memories. Oh. And it seems like yesterday, it was just a dream. But those days are gone. gone. <clears throat> Alright. Let's pretend Marshall Mathers never picked up a pin. Let's pretend things would have been no different. Pretend he procrastinated, had no motivation. Pretend. Just made excuses that were so paper thin They could blow away with the wind Marshall, you're never gonna make it Makes no sense to play the game There ain't no way that you'll win Pretend he just stayed outside all day And played with his friends Pretend he even had a friend to say was his friend And it wasn't time to move And schools weren't changing again He wasn't socially awkward And just strange as a kid He had a father and his mother Wasn't crazy as shit And he never dreamed he could rip stadiums And just lazy as shit Fuck a talent show in the gymnasium, bitch You want him out the shit Quit daydreaming, kid You need to get your cranium checked you're thinking like an alien, it just ain't realistic Now pretend pain just make him angry with this shit And there was no one he could even name when he's pissed it And his alarm went off to wake him, but he didn't make it to the Rap Olympics Slept through his plane and he missed it He's gonna have a hard time explaining to Haley and Laney These food stamps and this wick shit Cause he never risked shit He hoped and he wished it, but it didn't fall in his lap So he ain't even here, he pretends that Here's good news. This story isn't about the Taliban or about the double-dip depression. This is about astronomy from Time magazine. When astronomers discovered the first planet orbiting a distant star back in 1995, it took most of their colleagues completely by surprise. The detection by European observers Michael Mayer and Didier Queloth was indirect. They picked up the back-and-forth gravitational wobbles the planet imposed on the star 51 Pegasi as it orbited. It was a clever idea, but the wobbles, or radial velocities is the technical term, were so subtle that nobody had ever thought they could be seen. Since then, such radial velocity searches have turned up literally hundreds of exoplanets. The latest and most dramatic of them was announced this week. Glies 581G a roughly Earth-like planet orbiting in the Goldilocks zone, far enough away from home from the home star that temperatures are not too hot, but close enough that they are not too cold either, and thus just right for the possibility of life. So I guess we all here on Earth live in the Goldilocks zone. Powerful as the radial velocity strategy has turned out to be, however, it's got one significant drawback. Because it's based on gravity alone, it can tell scientists only how massive a planet is, not how physically large. If Glies 581G, and they got to find a better name for that, is made of rock, it's probably about twice the diameter of Earth, says astronomer Steve Voigt of the University of California, Santa Cruz, the co-discoverer of the New World. But if it's made of marshmallow cream and chewy nougat, it's a lot bigger. Steve, here's a tip. 
It's not made of marshmallow cream and chewy nougat. That stuff just doesn't make it for billions of years in space. Although there are some candy bars I've eaten that probably (laughs) go the other way. Voigt strongly suspects rock over nougat. Yeah, okay, rock covers nougat or crushes nougat. But without an actual measurement, he can't say for certain. The planet could just as easily be mostly ice or even a very long shot, mostly gas. A way to determine a distant planet's size does exist, however, if it happens to pass right in front of its star in what's known as a transit. The planet blocks some of the starlight. By measuring how much the star dims, astronomers can calculate exactly how large the blocking object is. That's the concept behind the Kepler mission. A spaceship launched last year into solar orbit to stare unblinking and unceasingly at about 130,000 stars to look for telltale dimming. It's legal stalking. The probe's explicit mission is to find how common Earth-mass planets are in the Milky Way. And last August, the Kepler team scheduled a press conference, then canceled it, announcing only that it had 400 objects of interest that it would be reporting on early in 2011. Makes them kind of like the the FBI of astronomers. Uh, We have 400 objects of interest that we have been stalking for years, unblinking from space. The best thing I can tell you about Kepler, says Jeff Marcy, the Berkeley planet hunter who has found more distant worlds than anyone else, is that we sequestered 400 stars. And you can bet the implications of some of them are profound. Bring it on! The scientists won't be able to detect life if it exists, and that's always been the ultimate goal of most planet hunters. On Wednesday, Steve Vogt declared that he was almost 100% sure that Gliese 581g has at least primitive organisms living on it, but that's an aspirational claim not based on any evidence. To get the evidence, astronomers will have to figure out what gases are swirling in its atmosphere or how the surface reflects light from its star, potential clues to whether vegetation covers the ground or whether anything down there is breathing. That will have to wait for a new space telescope called the Terrestrial Planet Finder, capable of imaging a second Earth around an alien star. Unfortunately, the project was put on NASA's inactive list during a round of budget cuts a couple of years ago. Yes, we would rather have boots on the ground in Afghanistan than eyes in space. Well, fall continues. Each day we get deeper into the darkening of the light. It just makes me run right back to Tang, China, where our our poets are awaiting. Who we got today, Dave? Well, this is uh, Dao Chen again. Oh, I love Dao, one, man. He's one, cool. One of this one of these series of reflective poems. Uh, listen to this guy. He's he's got something to say. A noble ambition spans the four seas. Mine is simpler, not to grow old. I'd like my family all in one place. My sons and grandsons all caring for each other. I want a goblet and a lute to greet each day, and my wine casks never to run dry. Belt loosened, I drink pleasure to the dregs. I rise late and retire early. How can today be compared to yesterday? My heart harbored both ice and coal. In time, ashes return to ashes, dust to dust, and vain is the way of fame and glory. Ah, vain indeed. But it's glorious being with you here on Oz. Why, thank you. I'll I'll, I'll suffer that (laughs) vanity, and we'll suffer again with you when Oz returns.